Genesis chapter 12. Let's go before the king one more time. Oh, Father, Jesus, Spirit, would you come and dwell here? Would these words be piercing to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 12. Remember, we've been looking at, last week, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Remember, first once made the gateway to God. The word Babel there. Bab-el. Bab-gate. El means God. Gate to God, or gate of God. Their own religion. Remember, they built this tower for themselves, erecting something so they could have a name for themselves. And remember, we talked about us trying to build a tower for our lives trying to do special works to please God, when God has already been pleased by Jesus. He's completely happy with you. He's not mad at you. The war's over, my friends. He's not bummed out on you. God has built a tower for you to just go and hang out and have a blast in. And we are to do that. And we are to fellowship in that place. And have a wonderful life in that space. Genesis chapter 12, we're diving more into Abraham's life we're going to be looking at. Abraham, we see in Genesis chapter 11, his family right at the end there, we didn't get to cover it, verses 27 through 30, his father, Terah is his name, and he has a son named Haran. And Haran, you remember, or you don't remember, he has a son named Lot, and so that is Abraham's brother is Haran, so you got Terah, right? I mean, Terah is the father, that branches out, you have Haran, and you have Abraham also a son. Haran has a son, and his name is Lot, and that is Abraham's nephew, obviously, right? That's uncle right there, it's his brother. And so we see that there in this text. They end up, the son, uh, Haran, ends up dying before the father had died, Terah. And so Terah decides to bail out, and he goes, and you see there in verse 32, they dwelt there in Haran until Terah, the father, died. They dwelt in a city named Haran, the same name of his son, interesting something to just point out real quick. I wonder if the father, Abraham's father, bummed about his son's death, who? Haran. He's bummed out about him, and then what? He ends up going to the city named Haran, and he dwells there until he dies. I wonder if he was so bummed out, stuck on this death of his son. So much so that he couldn't move on to the place that he was supposed to go, and Abraham gets caught up there. Abraham's supposed to go to Canaan, and he ends up in Haran for the next 25 years. He stays there with his father, You'll see right here in in verse 1 of chapter 12, God tells Abraham, listen, you are not to hang out with your family, you are to leave your family, and you are to go off into the land of Canaan by yourself. You are to go. And he does not end up doing that. He stays with his father. And it's a mistake. Because he just sits there for 25 years and does nothing. And so this is where we're picking up in the story. Abraham has just spent 25 years in Terah. His father has just died. His brother died, remember, years before that. The father took the family there to Haran. They dwelt there until Terah died. And now Abraham is getting ready to move. And so we'll start up right there in verse 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, this is before Abraham got his name from God. His name is Abram here. Get thee out of thy country, or get out of your country, from thy kindred, and from your father's house, unto a land that I show you. Remember, we just talked about that. God told him, get out of the house, get out of your place, your, your dwelling place, this country that you're staying in. 
Where, did, where, did, where was Abraham raised? He was raised in a place called Ur of Chaldees. Chaldees. And it was a very rich neighborhood. Extremely rich. This is where bathtubs were invented. That's right. It's the first hot tubs ever in the city there of Ur or the Chaldees. It was like the Newport Beach at that time. Really expensive, really ritzy place. And Abraham grew up there. And the father told him to get out of there and to go to Canaan. We'll see that. He says here in verse 2, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Let's stop right there. God is reaching out to Abraham. He calls Abraham. God comes up and calls upon Abraham. This is before he is not believing in God. He is not in fellowship with God yet. You must understand. In Joshua 24, it shows that Abraham actually served other gods. He served pagan gods. His family is from pagan descent. They're serving these idols and false gods. Abraham. And so now he is coming, and all of a sudden God calls out to him and tells him this and starts saying this to him there, here in verse 1 and verse 2. And verse, you see God is speaking to Abraham. Notice that it is not Abraham who called upon God, but it is God who called upon Abraham. And my friends, it is not you who God is... What is you that God has called upon, but it is not you who has made the decision to chase after God. It is not you, my friends. You say, Josh, but I have free choice. Yes, you do. But it is God who has prompted your heart to come to Him, the Bible tells us. It is God who has prompted you and there is no way that you could have come to God unless He has spoken unto your heart. And yes, you have a decision to make at that point, but it is God who calls a man. And I believe personally that God has called many men, that He reaches out to many, just like who? The twelve disciples. How many did God twelve, I mean, how many did Jesus call? He called twelve there. And He called Judas at the same time. Now why would He call Judas if He knew that Judas would betray Him and turn from Him? Because that's what a gracious God, a gracious King is. That is what He has done to the rest of the world, I believe, today. The world is the picture of Judas. God has called the world to be one of His disciples. And it's up to them to make the decision whether or not to follow Him truly, holy with their whole hearts. And so God has chosen them. God has called on them. He desires that all would come to Him and that all would be saved. And Abram, Abraham, we see here, Abram, we see... God calling upon him and speaking out to him and showing him these things. There's three quick reasons why I'm just going to point out right here before we go through this text why God chose to make Abraham a great nation of the Jews. My friends, listen. This is where the Old Testament begins. This is where the entire story and heritage of the Jews begins, right here in chapter 12. It's ironic. Genesis chapter 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. We see right here in chapter 12, everything begins. The entire Old Testament is based on the foundation of the Jews. And there's three things that it's pointing out. There's three things why God chose to make Abraham a great nation to the Jews. To the Jews. Number one, to be a witness of God's ways. And we see that there. You can look up these scriptures. Isaiah 44:23. God is going to use Israel to show himself. He will glorify Himself through this nation. Remember? Did you hear what I just said? To be a witness of God's ways. God is going to, what? Establish this nation. It's like if He chose us in this room. Are you ready? 
God has come to us and say, I'm Abraham and you're all my kids or whatever and you're the nation that's about to happen. God has chosen us to display His ways to the world through us. And so He will do those things. The ways of God, the witness of God will be in the Jews. We'll see in the Old Testament. Number two, to be a keeper of God's word. He's chosen the Jews or Abraham's descendants, the Jews, the nation of Israel, to be the keeper of His ways. The law abiders. The ones that will set an example for the rest of the earth. And number three, a channel for God's wonders. A channel for the king's wonders. It will be a place where God can show his glory through all men. And he will do this through the Old Testament. We'll see it. Moses and the Red Sea, all the, all the miracles in Egypt. Elisha calling fire down from heaven. Jonah being swallowed up. You see, all, all these crazy things that happened there. Joshua... The battle of Jericho, David, King David, and the battles that he fights. All, the miraculous signs and wonders will come through Israel. And so we're going to read through here. I just want to read down to verse 3, just so we can get a, get, a, get a little scope of this. And we'll continue on. Start at verse 1 again. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of your country, from thy kindred, and from the father's house, unto the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless, I'm sorry, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. In verse 3, I love it. And I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. And in you shall all families on the earth be blessed. Here it is, my friends. This is the verse that is happening right now in our day. This is what we're seeing before our eyes. Do you understand? Why are we, America, blessed by any, at all? It is because we bless Israel. What did God just say here? He says, anybody who blesses you, Abraham, your nation, the Jews that are going to come from you, anyone who blesses you will be blessed, but anyone that curses you will be cursed. And notice, any nation that has come up against the Jews in all of history... They've been defeated. They've been wiped out. Where are they? Where are the Romans, the greatest civilization ever walked the earth? They're gone. They're not succeeding. Every single person who has ever tried to stand up against the Jews, and I can say, bold-faced, without a shadow of a doubt, any nation that rises up against the Jews will be wiped out. Anyone. And the Jews will not ever be extinct. They will not. Nobody will ever wipe them out. Ever. You know there's only 5 million Jews there right now? 5 million. You know there's spaces in Israel from place to place that are only... Okay, let me show you a diagram of Israel the best I can. Okay, here's Israel, right? It's this long piece of land, like California, kind of like. Okay? From side to side, the, the, the width, the widest that it is, is 70 miles. You could drive that in less than an hour. There are certain spots that are only 3 miles wide. There are certain spots there in Israel that it, it, it's such a small population. They say it's like the size of San Bernardino. That's how big Israel is. I was looking at these statistics, just mind-blowing, about how many times you could fit Israel in America. And it's just some absurd amount. That you could fit the entire country. The United States is our country. The entire country, two times in Florida. It's ridiculous how small this thing is. And nobody can wipe it out. What's the deal? Because God has his hand on that nation, you will never be able to wipe it out. And I would encourage you, if you've not seen it, check out 
50 years of, of war, 50 years of Israel. You can check out, there's many documentaries on it, the 50 years, the 50 year war of Israel and all things it's gone through. I watched this like an eight hour video when I was in the desert. It's unbelievable. You see the hand of God moving through these wars. I remember one time, like the Jews had been backed up like in a little skirmish one day. They'd been backed up to the Mediterranean Sea with rocks. People were coming at them with guns and all kinds of crazy stuff, and they beat them off with rocks. And the small weapons of death. You cannot rise up the family of God. You will not. You will not. No one will ever. Because God says it right here. And number two, what does it say? At the second part of verse three, and in you, the Jews, shall all families on the earth be blessed. What does that mean? All families on the earth will be blessed. What does that mean? Jesus, our King, is the one who is going to come through the Jews, and He will be the one that will bless every single man that ever walked the face of the earth, if they're willing to be blessed. Verse 4, let's move on. I will, I'm sorry. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. Remember, that's his nephew. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. So, and Abraham took Sarai, or Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substances that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Let's move on, verse 6. And Abraham passed through the land into the place of Skishim, unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. Stop there. Did you see verse 7? What did it say? And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said what? Read with me. What does he say? I will give you this land. Unto you will I give this land. Who? You, Abraham. Who's Abraham? The nation of Israel. The Jews. Whose land is that? Whose land is Israel? It goes all the way. Look at this. Right now, in our time, in our news, go flip on the channel. What are they fighting over? They're fighting over the land continually. And God had said all the way back from the foundations of the earth, this is your land. And do you know that the Jews are okay with living in peace with the Palestinians or with the Arab people. Do you know that? Israel's not saying, we want everybody out. They're saying, hey, we're down to live in peace. Okay, you can live on our land, that's cool. But the Arabs, I'm sorry, the Muslims, I should say, are saying, we will not live in peace. We want all the land. We're going to kill you and do whatever it takes to take over all the land. We want the Jews wiped off the face of the earth. And it goes all the way back to this man, Abraham. We're going to see that right now, where the Muslims came from. It's coming right now. Check this. But it is God who gave the land to these people. Verse 8. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel. That means house of God. And pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called, unto the, and called upon the name of the Lord. 
And Abraham journeyed, going on still towards the south. I love this. Check this out. Abraham in verse 8, he comes to the, he's in between the house of God and this place, this other place is called the heap. This place, Hai, the illustration or the, I'm sorry, the, the definition is heap or dump would be a better translation. He's in between this. But look what happens. What is the first thing he does when he comes to this place? He builds a tent. And the second thing that he does, what does he do? He builds an altar. Notice that everywhere Abraham goes, he builds an altar. He worships the king everywhere that he goes. And number two, a tent. A tent. A tent. Why does he build a house? Why does he go get some branches and, uh, I don't know, cut down some trees and start establishing them and go make some brick and start building a house? Why doesn't he do that? That's right. He does not plan on staying there that long. Turn your Bibles real quick to Hebrews chapter 11. Check it out. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham built a tent because he was not going to stay there for long. And it's found here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Listen. Read it with me. By faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing where he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as a, in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob. And there he is with him of the same promise. Look at verse 10. For he looked for a city which had no foundations, whose builder is the maker. Her maker is God. Abraham built a tent everywhere that he went. Why? Because he was looking for a city that the foundation that was built, that the maker was God. He was looking for that city. What city is that, my friends? It's heaven. It's heaven. It's heaven. And we are going to be there soon. What are you doing building a house? What are you doing getting established and worrying about this life and getting bummed out on this or that? You are a sojourn. We're kind of just moving through. We're pilgrims. This life is not going to be here for long. How long is 80 years compared to eternity? Let's think about it. 80 years compared to 1,000 times 10,000 times 100,000 times a million times a trillion times a billion trillion times a zillion times... And that's how many years we're going to be in eternity. And that's just the beginning, right, of eternity. We're so caught up in these 80 years, this vapor that's going to pass by, this little drop in a bucket that no one can see. What are we doing? Do not get established. Are you saying I can't buy a house, Josh? No, buy a house. Build a business. Be successful in this life. But be ready to pull up those stakes at any time. 
Don't get comfortable here on this earth. If you don't live for heaven, you can't do anything on this earth, my friends. Some people say, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I say, unless you're heavenly minded, you can't be any earthly good. Keep your head in the clouds, my friends. Stay focused on Jesus. Be looking for that city. That the Maker is God. The foundation that has been laid is only by one, and His name is Jesus. Don't be looking for that Orange County city. Don't be looking for that place to dwell for the next 80 years. Hope and long to be out of here tonight, but prepare like we will be here for the rest of our lives. Abraham, the friend of God, You know why he was the friend of God? Because he hung out with God. He was not established. Jesus, our King, who had no place to lay his head. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And that's okay. And that's alright. Keep your eyes focused on heaven. The Israelites in the Old Testament, they would take when they were walking around, they would take a ribbon and they would hem it around the bottom of their uh, the bottom of their robes there when they would walk, and it was the color blue, because we know blue is an illustration of heaven. And they would hem this around the bottom of their cloak, and so that hey, when they were walking and they got down, they would look down and be reminded of heaven, that they're going there, that they're going to the promised land. That they will be there with the king. And maybe, friend, you tonight need to tie something blue around the bottom of your feet or whatever. So you can be reminded of heaven in each day and each moment. We're really going to be there. We're truly going to walk on streets of gold. The gold is so pure that you can see through it, the Bible says. Transparent. You're going to be able to see Jesus one day. With your own eyes and behold Him with your hands. You and me too, if you can beat me to Him, we're going to be walking in hand in hand with Him. We're going to be spending time with Him, talking to the King, It just seems so impossible, you know? I used to use this illustration all the time when I used to go into the high schools to try to help the kids understand a little better. I'd say it's like this. If you know you're going on vacation in Hawaii in a month, you'd count down for those days, wouldn't you? There'd be great excitement building in you. You know that there's a place called Hawaii and that you're going there. And that your feet is going to be just rubbing through that sand. And your body's going to touch that water and you're going to get a nice tan. You know that you're going to be there. You know that you're going to see it with your own eyes. You know that you're going to experience it. You're going to smell it. You're going to taste it. It's going to be for real. And so in the same way, my friends, we must not lose heart. Let's say, hey, we're all going on vacation next week to Hawaii, okay? Hey, we're going. We're going to be there. Are you ready? Get that in your mind. We're going to be there. 
Now just switch that place over to heaven, my friends. Next week, about Tuesday around 3.30, we're taking off. You got your passes ready. If you don't, get your passport, okay? Because you can't get on the plane unless you have it. It's a ticket of salvation. And we're going to be there. And what if that was reality? Right now. Heaven's next Tuesday. Are you ready? Be walking on the streets of gold. Be my arm around Jesus, talking with him. I'm going to go pick you up and throw you in the river of life and laugh at you. And, <laughs> and we're going to have a blast. And we're going to be there. You must prepare your heart. You must make it a reality within your soul. Because if it's not, then everything will fade, my friends. All of Jesus starts to fade and all the world comes up in here. And it's like, oh, I've got to do this. For what? Pick up your tent. Let's get ready to go. We're going camping for eternity. Don't miss out. Abraham, the friend of God, was a sojourner. And he was looking for the place, that city that God's hands had made. And of course he found it the day he died. So let's move on and finish up this chapter. Oh, snap. Praise the Lord. Verse 10, and there was a famine in the land. Remember, he had his tent there. So there's a famine in the land. All of a sudden, what does he do? He picks up tent. And Abraham went down into Egypt. Notice, real quick, something quick to note. The Bible always says, goes down to Egypt. It never says go up to Egypt. It never will. Even if you're going up to Egypt, you never will. You never see it. It always says going up to Jerusalem and down to Egypt. Because Egypt is a type of the world. It's always a picture of the world. And anytime you go down to Egypt, you're going down. You're sink, your, your ship is sinking. That's all there is to it. Anytime you go to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus dwelt, the place where he will establish his kingdom, you're always going up, my friends. But Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was grievous in the land. That's danger already. What is Abraham doing going down in Egypt? And it came to pass, in verse 11, when he come near to enter into Egypt, he said unto Sarah, his wife, Behold, I know that there are fair women to look upon. What's going on? You know, how old Sarah? Remember, Abraham's like 75. She's probably like 65 or who knows. Yeah. He's looking at her and hey baby, you're beautiful. You know, I just noticed that. Hello. I know that you are a fair woman to look upon. A 65-year-old woman fair to look upon? Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians see you they shall say this is his wife and they will kill me but they will save you alive so say I pray to you please say this thou art my sister say you're my sister and they may be well with me for my sake and my soul shall live because of thee so what does he do? Remember, he's going down to Egypt where he shouldn't be going anyways. 
You should be trusting in God. There's a famine in the land. Why don't you just call out to the king, man? The Lord has spoken to you many times. He's going down to Egypt, and guess what happens? He starts thinking, oh, snap. My wife's beautiful. When I get down to Egypt, they're going to be like, oh, I want that. The Pharaoh's going to say, and then they're going to kill me and wipe me off the face of the earth and take my wife and do whatever they please. But notice he doesn't say for the sake of you. He doesn't say, hey baby, please, you know, say you're my sister, you know, so they don't, so they don't take you and kill me, you know, so they don't take you and go and do all kinds of crazy stuff to you. No. He says, say that you're my sister so they don't do anything to me, so they don't kill me. And Abraham is lying here because that is not his sister. Well, it's his half-sister, actually. So he's telling Thib here. It's the white lie that we always tell. It's that little thing that we kind of push under the table. The false witness that we bear about someone or some person. It's just it's sleek. It's small. Nobody really knows what's going on. But those are the things that can get you in big trouble, my friends. Listen. The white lies, the small things that you can, uh, you know, really quick and easy with words. You can work people and manipulate their minds very easily. Say something and convince yourself that you're not really lying. It's dangerous. And this is why. Because the repercussions are just as bad as a lie. But you've convinced yourself that it's not that big of a deal. So you find yourself in deep water before you know it because you, you know, woozed yourself and woozed the person around you. Be careful. Focus. When the word of the Lord is tapping on your heart, when God is tapping on your heart, make the decision. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Easy as one, two, three. And you'll be blessed. Let's watch what happens to Abraham because he decided to tell us white lie. Check this out. In verse 14, so Sarah agrees, and it came to pass that when Abraham was coming to Egypt, that the Egyptians beheld the woman just as he thought and saw she was very fair. That's crazy, man. She's like 65 years old, and they thought, very fair. I looked up that word very fair. It's only used like four times in the Bible. If the Bible says a woman is very fair, if she's hot, and, she, and she's got to be just, I mean, it's divine. I mean, it's the word of God. It doesn't lie. She must have been hot, even though she's 65. But let's read on. The princess also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entered, or entreated Abraham well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen, and he had asses, and men servants, and maid servants, and she asses, and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with the great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So what happens? Abraham walks in. That's my sister, you know, this and that. Oh, wow, she's hot. Hey, let me hook you up with some donkeys. Let me hook you up with some maid servants. Let me hook you up with some, with some what else do you give him? He gives him oxen, and he gives him sheep. Those are the riches of the land. Abraham was already wealthy, but look at this. He's getting hooked up. He gets all this stuff. So he's just, I mean, mega wealthy. And 
Pharaoh takes Sarah maybe into his bedroom or something, maybe, you know, thinking he's going to get some loving tonight or something, you know. And what happens? A plague comes upon him. And I don't know what that is. Maybe he got sick and he just like, oh, you know, just felt all just jacked up and didn't feel like loving. But something happened and all of a sudden, look what Pharaoh does in verse 18. Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did not you not tell me that this is your wife? Number one, I want to know how he figured that out. Did Sarah tell him? It doesn't say in the text. It's interesting. Was Pharaoh like sitting there and he's like, oh, oh, so, oh, what's going on? Plague, plague, plague. And Sarah's like, well, the truth is, is uh, Abraham's my husband. He lied to you. He's like, what? You know, just get frantic and crazy and comes out screaming. Or did God come to him and tap him on the heart in a dream or something and say, hey, that's not his sister, that's his wife, man. You're in trouble. You better let that go. I don't know exactly, but something happens to Pharaoh. And he goes crazy and he says, Why hast thou said that she is my sister? Verse 19. So my, I, I might have taken her to be my wife, now there be, therefore behold, thy wife, take her and go away. He's so disgusted. And Pharaoh commended his men concerning him. And they went away and his wife and all that he had. So notice, Abraham still gets to go away with everything that he had, right? Pharaoh gave him all this stuff in exchange for his wife, for his sister. What a buster, you know? How could you give up your wife like that, Abraham? And he does it again, too. Just letting, you know, Pharaoh do whatever just so he could keep his head. I mean, it's like, come on, my man. But he does this act, and very interesting, there's two things to note, okay? Number one, Abraham reaps what he sows. What are you talking about, Josh? He got to walk away with all this sheep, all this ox, and all his cattle, all this riches. Notice, who else did he walk away with? Maidservants. Guess who is in that flock of maidservants? A woman named Hagar. Remember? Abraham and Sarah can't have a child, remember? And God says, I promise you a child. And then he says, so, come and be with one of my maidservants. And this is where he got this maidservant from Pharaoh. And her name is Hagar. And guess what happens? Him and the, and the maidservant get together, Hagar, and they have a child. And who's that? Ishmael. And what is Ishmael? Ishmael is the descendant. Ishmael is the one that established the entire Arab nation. This is where the Muslim faith has come. The Muslims are the one who have persecuted the Jews all the days. Abraham's other, other child, Isaac, where the Jews come from. So Abraham has what? With Hagar, the maidservant that he got from Pharaoh, he has Ishmael, where the Muslim faith comes from. And then also he waits for the promised son from God, and that is Isaac. And you have the Muslims continually persecute his son Isaac all the days. And so what Abraham thought was a blessing turned out to be a great disaster for him and his nation. And we've all had Hagar's in our lives, haven't we? We mess up. But God is there to turn it around. But the second thing to note is this. Sarah. What an awesome, amazing Christian woman. Notice she didn't complain to her husband. Notice she did not get mad or bummed out and rip him a new one for his decision. Sarah 
is one of the only women that we have in the entire Bible that is used an example for submission. And it's found there in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Why not? We'll read it. And we'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 3. It's all the way towards the back of your Bible. It's right before you get to 1 John. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and I'll read it. Likewise, you wives, be in submission to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of planting the hair of wearing the gold or putting on the apparel, blah, 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 down to verse 5. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women, also who trusted in God and adorned themselves, being in submission under their husbands, verse 6, there it is, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. The ladies are like, oh, snap, why are you doing this, Josh? Why are you dropping this one on us? Listen, no, it's great, it's wonderful. The woman is to submit under her husband as the, the church submits under Christ. And the husband is the love, his wife, as Christ loves the church. And notice, it's, this doesn't make sense. Sarah had to know that she was getting thrown under the rail. Abraham was making a bad decision here, but she stuck in it. This is the Proverbs 31 woman. She trusted God. She submitted under her husband, even though she felt like he was making a wrong decision. Now, men, this does not give any man the reason to be superpower over any woman or to look down upon or say anything bad towards or even bash like a, like a rug mat or, or use authority to sway and to control and do all these crazy things? No, you are to love for us Christ loved the church, my friends. But it does give way that ladies, when you're married, if the husband is saying something and is, there is a decision that needs to be made and if he says, we're going to do this, and even if you think it's the wrong thing and you don't feel like it's the right thing, you, you submit. And you let him make that decision. Because this is why. You, you're allowed to say what you, you know, have to say. You're 50-50 in the relationship. You're allowed to give all opinion and say all that comes. But there is a time when the husband will say, well, this is what we're going to do. And so guess what? If he says that's what we're going to do, and guess what? If he messes up and he made the right, bad, wrong decision, then guess what? And he knows that you brought your opinion to the table. Next time you're going to say, oh, snap, better listen to my wife next time. Stupid, you know? But more than that, you be submitted unto him. And when he sees that, his heart crumbles inside because he realizes what a jerk he's been in trying to lay down the law. We're going to do this! Because I said so. Because I'm the man in this relationship and I'm running this game. And all of a sudden, when he makes the wrong decision, or the right decision, and he sees that you've been submitted unto him, 
And his heart trembles inside and he says, what a loser, you know. God's going to be nice to my wife. You can never lose, my friends. You can never lose when you are submitted unto any authority. Now, what, are we to submit to authorities that are doing things that are just blasphemous unto the king? You're going to come and you're going to, you know, drink 50 gallons of vodka with me. No, I'm not doing that. Wives don't have to do that. But when it is a decision that isn't, isn't direct sin or any one of these things, and we are to rest on those things and fall in under those things, even under the authority in your workplace, wherever you're at, authority in the church, I'm telling you, I'm the first man who wants to stand up and open his mouth and yell at the top of my lungs and say things. But submission is not submission unless it's submission. Submitting is not submitting unless you have to submit. Is submitting easy? No. But when you submit, when it's not easy, you will be exalted. You will be lifted up. If you do not, you'll reap the repercussions later and you will feel bummed and you'll be mad at yourself because you opened your mouth and said something you should. Let that be a key. Let that be applied in your life. A lot of principles we looked at tonight. A lot of different things that we've mowed through. But the total look at this chapter and what we're trying to see is Abraham being called the one to establish this nation. And God saying he's going to bless it. And right after that happens, the father Abraham, the man of faith, what do we see him? Fall right in his tracks. The man of faith. The Lord just spoke to me. There's one more thing. The man of faith, Abraham. He did not have faith that God would protect. He did not have faith that God would provide there in that passage. Do you see it? The man of faith. Take heed lest you fall, my friends. The biggest thing that you pride yourself in, you will fall. You must hold back. Why well, do I do this? And I'm you know, the best at it. I do this. For the Lord, I can't fall now. I'll never fall now. Be careful. And number two, the sin that you see in others the most is probably the sin that you struggle with the most. Because the thing that you struggle with the most, you can point out easily in everybody else's life because you're familiar with it. Be careful. Stay focused. Don't let your mind wander. It's extremely important that we know these things, just as Abraham. Having no faith, losing lack of faith, falling, messing up. But more than that, looking upon others and judging and that is the very thing that we struggle with the most. Recognize that. Remember? Plank in your own eye. The speck in your brother's. And that plank in your own eye is made of the same material that you see in your brother's. The same stuff. It's the thing that you see the most. A lot to take in, I know. 
focusing on heaven. Focusing on Jesus. This whole nation, this whole Jew system is set up so that Jesus can come through and be the Messiah and save the day. Here's the beginning of the chapter, and as we move through the Old Testament,